I don't like that COVID happened at all. Um, but how many know what the enemy means for harm, God can flip on them. And one of the things I'm thankful as we are certainly past the one-year mark of when pandemic hit, everything shut down, etc., cetera, uh, by about a week and a half or so, however long, as far as anniversaries that you don't want to celebrate. But one of the things I'm super thankful for are the new leaders that God has raised up and, and, and the three or four or five different worship leaders we have now and just different leaders of, of check-in teams. And there's areas that obviously need addressing um, as we kind of rebuild and come back together as a church community. But how many are, are here? How many want to sign up and say, I'm here, I'm in, um, to, to, to continue the rebuild process? But one of the things I'm just so thankful for has been the new leaders and those who've just been here serving for six, seven, eight, nine, ten, twelve months, and then just seeing God just land and raise them up to lead in various capacities. So, so thank you so much. And let me just pray for us as we get to the scriptures and and uh, see what the what the Lord wants to speak to us here. So, Father, I, I thank you again for man. Today really represents everyone's journey at some capacity. There was the dedication of new life. <laughs> there is the blessing of a life that has been fruitful, but it's going to a new field. And then there is the birth of a new ministry. And, and really, all of us are in that cycle on some level. And so thank you, Jesus, that today you find all of us where we are and your grace and your love just the way you know how it's supposed to work, can minister to each person in this room. And so I pray that you would do that right now, that you would, that you would minister by the Holy Spirit to each person as they need it. Some in this room need forgiveness. They're under a pile of shame. Some in this room need deliverance. They're facing battles that they cannot win in the arm of flesh. Some in this room feel like the disciples where there's thousands around them who are hungry, but all they feel they have is insufficient. Two loaves, a few loaves and some fish. Some, Father, are in the process of grieving a loss. But they're holding on to their confession that you are the resurrection and life. Father, wherever we're at on the journey, I thank you that the grace of God knows how to locate us. And I pray, Lord, your grace and your spirit upon each one. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. The, the talk today is called The King's Entry. It's a beautiful passage. It is, if you've been with us, please go back online to our podcast or YouTube, Facebook channel. And we've been on a multi-step journey through Mark chapter 8, 9, and 10. And here we are where the king enters the king's city, Jerusalem. It says this in Mark 11, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you'll find a colt there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it. 
and he will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. And as they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying the colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks over it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple courts and he looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, As they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went out to find if it had any fruit. When he searched it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves, and he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written? My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this, and they began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. This is the gospel of our King Jesus. Thanks be to God. In many ways, the, the, the gospel, this is the moment we've all been waiting for. If you read the gospel of Mark, you can read it in about an hour and a half. If you're, if you're a medium, you know, maybe two hours size reader or audio Bible, less than you know, two hours. It's a great gospel. But one of the characteristics of the gospel of Mark is his phrase, the word immediately, say immediately. I mean, no sooner does he get a teaching out and Mark says, immediately Jesus went, immediately he drove out, immediately he left, immediately, 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 fast, fast. Mark is known as sort of the lion. He's just leaping. He's jumping. He's bounding. He's got a plan. He's an agenda. There's an immediately in his spirit as he writes by the spirit until we get to Passion Week. And he slows the roll down. There's the, the immediately, 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 then the king comes into the royal city. And this is the moment we've been waiting for. One theologian says this, that the gospels really are long introductions until you get to Passion Week. The week of Jesus' suffering. This is the reason he came. Jesus is healed, taught, trained, formed disciples, forgiven sinners, miraculously fed thousands, opened blinded eyes, unstopped deaf ears, announced the kingdom of God, deployed his followers into surrounding villages to heal the sick, cast out demons, and raise the dead. 
And here we are, the showdown, the rightful heir to David's throne, rolling up on his humble donkey. And there's a confrontation that's about to go down. Here it is. We see that Jesus is met with some acceptance and approval. Those shouting, Hosanna, save us, save us. He's come to save us. This is him. This is the the king. This is David's heir. This is Israel's Messiah. But the establishment, the priests and the leaders are not there to greet him. On the contrary, as we'll see over the next week, if you'll join us at the altar and online, we'll walk through Holy Week and the events that lead to his crucifixion and then next Sunday, his resurrection. Of all places that should have been able to acknowledge and understand God's activity, the religious rulers, the priests, and the power brokers of the temple, they don't see what the humble confessors in the crowd see. How many have ever been under the blinding influence of your power or your position? And you were unable to see things as they really were. And so let's unpack what's happening here. Why the colt? Why the donkey? I'm going to go back to Zechariah, which Jesus fulfills in the writing into Jerusalem on the humble donkey. It says this in Zechariah chapter 9. I will encamp at my temple to guard it against the forces. It's on the, it's on the uh, screens, Justin, if you've got it for everybody. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people. For now I am keeping watch. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now, I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. The Lord their God will save his people. And on that day, as a shepherd saves his flock, they will sparkle. Look at, look at what God says his people that he redeems will look like. They will sparkle in his hand like jewels in a crown. How attractive and beautiful they will be. Grain will make the young men thrive and new wine the young women. So Jesus rides and he knows he's fulfilling the, the storyline that he and the father had have penned from before time began. Here comes the king on the donkey. And he's not just fulfilling verse 9 and 10, the lowly king that's riding in to save. He's fulfilling all of the prophetic hope. See, at this point, It wasn't Babylon who's oppressing God's people or Assyria and the northern kingdom Israel. It's Rome oppressing God's people. 
And the promise that when the king would come riding the donkey, the, the, the colt, the foal of a donkey, when he would come, he would overthrow the oppressors. It would be God himself coming to his temple. The king will be righteous, which was always hard for the kings to somehow produce, if you read the story, and victorious. So he, in his righteousness and his victory, he wouldn't betray his righteousness. How many know many times for us to get ahead or to win, we have to bend or break the rules a little bit to get ahead. But this king will be both righteous and victorious. Peace will be his proclamation and the way of his kingdom. That he won't just rule over Israel, according to Zechariah 9, he will rule over all the earth. The end of exile, if you read that phrase back in 11, 12, and 13, that he will, he'll save you from the waterless pit. Imagine being in a waterless pit. Helpless and hopeless, no water, you're stuck. This is a picture of being exiled, being under the oppressive grip of the enemy. He will save you from your waterless pits. How many have been in a waterless pit and God lifted you up out of one? He will unify the northern kingdom Israel and the southern kingdom Judah. This is all in Zechariah 9. This is what Jesus writes into Jerusalem knowing he's about to fulfill all of these promises. He will shepherd his flock and he'll delight in a people that shine like jewels in a crown. This humble king, Hosanna, the son of David, comes to fulfill all of these prophetic promises. But how many know how he would fulfill them? No one saw coming. This is why we've been talking for weeks. Every time Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be killed. On three occasions, his disciples are like, what? But how will you fulfill all of the promises of deliverance and destruction of the enemy and the glory of God filling it? And they couldn't get it. And here Jesus is riding in on the donkey, knowing all of the prophetic promises are hanging on his obedience to the Father's will. Then point number one, there will be times when God is fulfilling his greater purpose in you and in us, and it won't be what we saw coming. Can I get an amen? Amen. There will be times and seasons when God's will is being done and you and I are like still holding our palm branches thinking God's going to play it one way when he's got a bigger purpose and plan he's about to fulfill. The Messiah is the one who was coming to bring forth justice, to usher in God's kingdom, to be a mighty warrior like King David, to restore the glory of Israel, to get rid of the oppressive Roman regime to overthrow and to conquer. And he will usher in the age to come, the age of the Spirit and the glory of God once again in Jerusalem, beaming out into the nations of the earth. This was their hope. So what's up with the fig tree? Jesus rolls up to the locus of where God's presence was supposed to be dwelling and reigning and ruling. And he sees right through all of the outer busyness to the heart. 
How many are both comforted by the fact and convicted by the fact that Jesus can see right through all of our outward games, facades, and busyness? And this fig tree represents a living parable to illustrate the work he's exposing and the work he's bringing through his sacrificial love. What looked like fruitfulness. I mean, Herod rebuilt this wonder of the world. He, you know, kind of redid what Zerubbabel and the the post-exilic community rebuilt. It was too puny for him. And Herod was known as a master builder all over Israel, everywhere. And so he makes this glorious temple complex, but it had no glory. Come on, somebody. Glorious marbles, beauty, gold. I mean, it was a wonder to behold, but it was like a fruit tree that had leaves but no fruit. And so Jesus is able to see in the living parable of the fig tree, which always represented Israel in the Old Testament, a fig tree and a vine and a tree. These are rich metaphors that were were indicative of how God viewed his people and It's never on God's end that caused his people to be fruitless. It was always the rebellion of God's people that dictated their fruitfulness as they abided in the law and the ways and the word and wisdom of their covenant God. And what looked so promising and flourishing on the outside was only a front. On the inside, Jesus shows us by cursing the fig tree that promised much from a distance upon closer inspection was disappointing, to say the least. I said this already. I got ahead of myself. Herod's temple was gorgeous, a 50, 60, 70-year project, but it had no glory. I'm reminded of the church that Jesus writes to in Sardis. You have a reputation for being alive on the outside, but inside you're just dead. And the humbling fact is that when the king comes to town, the king comes with perfect vision. He can see right through all of what would be perceived fruitfulness and busyness And he sees to the heart. And in spite of God's law, in spite of God's covenant, in spite of God's presence, in spite of God's mighty deliverances and provision for the people of God for generations, the one place that's meant to be the locus of his healing, redemptive light and glory, instead of it being a glory for the nations, it got inbred and Twisted and power corrupt. And instead of a fruitful vine, you have a fruitless show. And in many ways, I'm not saying that our church is a fruitless show. Give me a break. And I'm I'm even leery to talk about the church as if I have the authority to the church. But in some ways, as I was studying this passage, I felt like this last year was an opportunity for Jesus to come up to his church, particularly in the West, in America, and to inspect our fruit. Can I get an amen? Like, like all of our outward, our typical rhythms, our youth group, all the programs, all of the things, kind of like for all of us, even those, well, there was a very few that just kept on meeting, but, and that's great. But 
for many of us, there was a pause and it was this season of inspection. All these beautiful leaves, but no fruit. But how many know from a year that by the grace of God, we're, we're making it out of and through. Our story doesn't have to be all outer show, but no inner glow. We can be fruitful as we submit to the king and his kingdom coming. Then they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple after the living parable of the fig tree. And he overturns their tables and stops the money changers. And basically through Jesus, he's just like Jeremiah and the prophets of old here. He's pulling a prophetic card out of the playbook. He basically shuts the entire temple system down for a time. Now, let me describe that this is kind of a big deal, considering it's right around one of the busiest festivals and feasts of Israel, right around Passover time. There are people from all over the known world who are coming to Jerusalem for such a time as this. And this rabbi from Nazareth, riding on a donkey with the shouts of Hosanna reverberating off the temple complex walls, probably, he prophetically overturns the tables and there's this disruption. It probably wasn't that big of a disruption or we probably would have seen the Romans who were stationed just over at the uh, uh, Antonia. There's no biblical evidence that they, it was that big of a disruption. They deployed the Roman soldiers to squash any sort of uh, squirmish. But it was enough that everything stood still for a moment. The sacrificial system, the exchange of money, the, 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 the exchange of of commerce, and for a moment, the king's like, can we just be quiet for a second? All the busyness, all the noise, all of the commerce, all of the, and obviously the high priests were lining their pockets with the exchange rate. There's all sorts of injustice happening. And just for a moment, the king wants a moment in what was to be his father's house of prayer for all nations and in this prophetic burst of truthfulness, and I just see, because in John chapter 2, it was zeal for, for, for his house that consumed Jesus' heart. And there's this moment where he declares the truth of what God's intention was always for. And one commentary said it like this. I couldn't say it better, so I just copied and pasted. If money cannot be exchanged into the holy currency required for temple services, then monetary support for the sacrifices and the priesthood must end. If animal sacrifices cannot be purchased, then sacrifice must end. If no vessel can be carried through the temple, then all cultic activity or worshiping activity must cease. Jesus doesn't seek to purify the current temple. Come on, somebody but symbolically attacks the very function of the temple and it heralds its destruction. The temple's glory days are coming to an end because the walking, talking, healing Torah temple is Jesus Christ, God in flesh. And so he's not throwing over tables because he plans to put them back up. Jesus the King comes to usher in God's entire new, redemptive, greater exodus for all nations. He doesn't want to hit pause, but because he's prophetic, he's the fullness of the prophetic office, obviously, 
He hits pause long enough to say, all of your systems, if you lift the hood on the sacrificial system, on the, all of the barriers that Herod and you guys put between the Gentiles and the Jews, all of these things that have, have been erected in, 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 in for your own purposes, your own pleasure, your own pocketbooks, your own position, your own power, all of these things I'm saying no to, not, I'm not going to slightly amend them. I'm coming to bring the glory of God back to Israel in a way you didn't see coming. And Jesus enacts judgment on the whole thing. Listen, you and I have a bad rap sort of like about judgment, but I want you to know judgment always comes before joy. He's got to set things right before we can experience the flow of the life that comes from being rightly aligned to his purposes and his kingdom. And Jesus judges in prophetic bursts of concentrated truth because he knows that he has to release the judgment to set it right so that it can flow and function and purpose as God designed. This is why throughout the Bible, I don't have time in this teaching from Genesis to Rev, the, the, the writers of Scripture rejoice in the judgments of God. Come on, there's coming a day when you and I, it's not like, oh, you know, we're all crying out for justice, but justice is going to come to all of us. He wants to set all the crooked, jacked up plates astray in our hearts and our lives. Can I get an amen? He doesn't just want to set them right. He wants to set us right so we're not the trees that have leaves but no fruit. Woo! And this place that was meant to be a place that the nations, that people could experience the covenant God of Israel became this inward-looking us, power, position. It was all corrupt from top to bottom. I'm going to skip all of that. So Jesus quotes two passages. We're doing really good. Isaiah 56 and, I, and then Jeremiah 7. When he says, my father's house will be a house of prayer. Just go read Isaiah 56. I don't have time. I want to honor y'all. All of 56 is amazing. I'll just zero in on verse 7, verse 6 and 7. And foreigners, this is the prophetic promise of what God will do when he brings salvation as justice, which is happening through Jesus. He says this, foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him and to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep his Sabbath without desecrating it. Hold fast to my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. The prophet Isaiah saw a time when those that, that used to be held out at arm's distance, they were excluded from God's presence. They were excluded from God's promise, from God's peace, from God's plan. The justice that God would bring when his servant would come would be that the foreigner would now be considered family. Come on. That the eunuch, those who are crushed in their body, and according to Deuteronomy, were not allowed to enter anywhere near the holiness of God, would be called sons and daughters. The outcasts, those called unclean, would be considered fellow members of God's people. In Isaiah 56, Jesus sees himself right here in the temple. Everything stopped for a moment. Jesus sees himself as the one who's going to bring all of these realities to bear. In this prophetic pause, this is almost this whole year. I mean, it's like the, the 
invisible year. Where did it go? It's like a year. It's like a pause for the Lord to come and to inspect. And I've been saying this for months. Tragedy, difficulty, adversity doesn't reveal something that's not there. It brings to the surface what's already there on the inside. And Jesus is saying, what I'm about to do, I'm going to bring back God's original intention. 24-7 access to God and acceptance through my love. I'm going to hand ownership and take it from the power brokers, from the good enoughs, from those that Herod installs for his own purposes. I'm going to hand the authority and the ownership back to my father. It's my father's house. No more profiteering, no more preference-driven pride and prejudice, and you're unclean, you need to pay more, you, nope, no further. You know, these warning signs that say, you know, a step further if you're a Gentile and you're dead. I'm coming to hand back ownership to my father. It's his house. I'm going to overtone not just a few tables, but entire systems that are predicated upon furthering the gap of injustice so that my house can be a house of prayer. For all nations. Jesus brings judgment on his house and on the temple. And he declares once and for all the central reality of his house. And it's going to be a place of prayer. A place where humanity can connect and commune with God. And aren't you thankful that there's no other joy than that connection and that communion when you're found in his loving arms. These I will bring to my holy mountain. Aren't you thankful for the grace of God that brings us to God? That brings us to Jesus. And then lastly, before reflecting, I got up here about 50 after, so I'm doing really good on time here, y'all. He quotes, it's a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. And he quotes Jeremiah 7. I will read this one because it's really easy and light. That was a joke for those who've ever read Jeremiah 7. Never mind. Let's read it, and then you'll laugh. This is what the Lord says, the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel. Read this one with me. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Let me pick it up from here. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the Lord's temple, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and if you don't shed innocent blood in this place, if you don't follow other gods to your own harm, that's an amazing verse. If you follow other gods for your own harm, then I will let you live in this place and the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery, perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods that you've not known and then come and stand in this house before me which bears my name and say, we are safe, safe to do all of these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. So when Jesus quotes the little verse, you've made it a den of robbers, the, the temple authorities know their Bible, even though they're corrupt, most of them. And they know how rabbis did it. They would quote one part, but they were alluding to all that wrapped around it. And here's what's happening. 
How we live doesn't matter as long as the show goes on. Come on, somebody. That narrative needs to be broken off the church. If another pastor falls, I mean, I'm not casting any stones, but it, it, listen, God sees our hearts. And the prophetic word is if you reform your ways and your actions, and then I will let you live and flourish in this place. But as long as you think you can live one way in one group of people or one stretch of your week and live another way, another way, I'm coming to reform and transform that whole entire divided reality that sin thinks you can get away with living. Sneaky. Unbelievable. It's not if you reform like your worship practices, like different song style. If you upgrade your graphics and your logos, and I love all those things for the record. I try to work hard doing that stuff. But he's like, if you reform your weight, you've got to, I got to change you. You think you're safe because you're in my house. I left a long time ago. Just read Ezekiel chapter 11. All of Ezekiel. I think it might be 11, maybe 10. When Ezekiel sees the glory leave the temple. That glory never came back to an edifice or a building. It showed up in a person, the man Christ Jesus. The Word made flesh. The Shekinah glory of God wrapped in skin and bone. This is the glory that God restored to Israel through His Son. And so when He says, you've made it a den of robbers, you guys think you can keep orphans. You think you can have all of these unjust practices because you have all the power and you have the position and you're on you know, the payroll. He's like, dude, you've got another thing coming. So that's our passage. They try, they immediately go scheme, okay, how are we going to get rid of this guy? Because come on, somebody. You've got two options if you get called on the carpet. Humble yourselves and repent. Bury and hide your shame on a top of a bunch of self-effort sufficiency, and you find yourself going further and further away from the grace that is drawing you and it's confronting you out of love so that you can get on experiencing the life God designed and destined for you. How many have done one or two of those options? He confronts us, no, I'm out. Or you say, yes, Lord. You're, you're, you're taking your time to reveal that in me man, you must have a better way for me. And so here's my, my closing questions. I just have like three or four reflection questions. Do I put more effort sprucing up my outer appearance of fruitfulness than I do in cultivating an inner life with Jesus where my ways are actually being transformed? Just ask yourself, Holy Spirit, do I care more about my outward perceived fruitfulness, busyness, activity, but inside I am? <clears throat> and does there need to be a shift in your thinking? Just ask the Lord. Number two, am I quick to shout Hosanna in the crowds? But as we'll see this week, Holy Week, but I'm quick to fall asleep in the garden of prayer when Jesus needs me the most. Zinger. Hosanna, yes, it's energy. Everyone's here. This is awesome. It's like cool to even shout it. 
But then when Jesus is like, my soul is heavy. I'm about to bear the sin of the world. Will you keep watch with me? Are we doing okay? It's good. Number three, am I participating knowingly or unknowingly, ask the Holy Spirit, in practices and harboring attitudes of superiority over those the world and even the church would call unclean, outcasts, unwelcomed, or unwanted. Do I think because I do this, this, or that, the Lord doesn't really want to, doesn't care how I view them or how I speak behind them. Or, and the Lord, the King is coming. Come on, somebody. The King came and He's coming. Yo, and he didn't, he's not coming the second time in glory to like overthrow like some chairs. I mean, he's got a lake of fire for the enemy to lock him up forever. I mean, he's coming with justice and with judgment. Oh my goodness. And so when he releases his judgment now, it's with a smile on his face because it's for the ultimate day when every knee will bow and will stand before his throne. So when we experience the heat of his spirit, it's not because he's mad or grumpy. He's like, I want to deal with that now so you can become those jewels in my crown that Zechariah 9 prophesied. Come on, somebody, say amen to that. Am I participating? Do I have attitudes or practices that, that reflect the den of robbers, those who thought they could act one way, but inside they were bleh. That's in the Greek, bleh. Last question. Two, two more questions. If I am the temple and the fig tree, what would Jesus see in and through my life upon closer inspection? You have to read Mark on two occasions. He's inspect, he's like, he inspects the fig tree and he's looking around at the temple. Like he, he's thinking, what's in there? What are they like? I love the, the promise. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. How many want Jesus to ride up into your temple? We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're a temple. You didn't even know it. This is the place by the Spirit of God that he wants to rule and to reign from. Are there tables that he does? You don't, you're like, Jesus, don't just flip them over. Let's burn them. Are there activities, attitudes, practices? Are there things in there that, that, that the Holy Spirit, you and the Holy Spirit, the grace and truth of Jesus need to reform? Is he talking to anybody in the room? Can you just say amen? God's ultimate vision is that you and I would be walking, talking temples that have branded on our chest all our welcome in the love of Jesus. <laughs> you and I are meant to live out of what Ezekiel saw when he saw out of the temple a flowing, rushing river that everywhere it went, life began to break out fruitfulness, trees lining its banks, the fruit of which trees heal the nations. 
fish of all different shapes, sizes, and colors. The Dead Sea, not just becoming inhabitable, but pulsating with life. Come on, somebody. If there was a cultural moment that was like a Dead Sea moment, it's now. But he can change a Dead Sea into a flourishing, vibrant oasis of life and refreshment. This was the vision Ezekiel saw coming from the true temple. And this is the reality that flows from Jesus Christ right now. You can be healed. You can bear fruit. You can be restored. You can be forgiven. You can be washed in the forgiveness and love of God because he didn't just overthrow some some tables and stop a paradigm or program for a moment. But as we'll look at this week, he became sin so that in him, you and I could experience God's salvation. Stand up on your feet with me. The king is entering. The king is riding in. Just say that to your neighbor. The king is riding in. Hosanna. He's the only one that can save us. And how many know Maybe the number one thing he needs to save us from is us. Can I get an amen? Maybe the biggest thing he wants to save us from is a, the lie of the enemy that me, you and I can be two different people. How many know that the grace of God has this integrating power that who we are in secret is the same as who we are in public? The grace of God, the salvation of God. I love, this is an auxiliary point. You know why else I love the fig tree? Because what was the thing that the garden couple reached for to cover their shame and nakedness? Fig leaves. And he's saying there's no religious activity or busyness that you're ever going to have to reach for again. Let me cover you with my forgiveness and my love. I curse that attempt. Past, present, and future. Let me be your salvation. Let me clothe you with my healing love and my salvation. How many need to respond today? Just lift up your hands. Holy Spirit, all these reflections, God, these questions. Man, Holy Spirit, we welcome the King to ride up into His temple today. We shout, Hosanna. You're the only one that can save us from, from, from sin, only one who can save us from our idols, only one who can save us from those practices that are unjust or oppressed. You're the only one. Hosanna, Son of David. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. And we ask that you would come to your temple right now. Lord, we are your temple. Ephesians 2, 19-22. We are the temple of God. His Holy Spirit is in this place and amongst us as His people. And Jesus, we are asking that we would be the church that opens the door, Revelation 3.20, to your knock so that you can come in and sit with us at the table and you can feast. And we'll be able to sit and reign on your throne with you. This is where we're headed, God. And so right now, we just say, do the deep work in us. Whatever it is. Maybe we've, some are just like, I need to be saved. I'm just like, ah, I'm not like compromised. I'm lost. Father, in the name of Jesus, loose your saving grace in this house. Just open up your heart. It's not magical. He came to you. You don't have to get to him. He came all the way to you and to me with his saving, healing love by his grace. But maybe the vast majority of us are like, man, I need a prophetic pause. I need the disruption of my regular patterns, and I want the Holy Spirit to go deep. I want him to cleanse me and to sanctify my heart, to rid my heart and my life of all of those things 
that are more concerned with outer show than inner glow and glory. Come on, how many want both? Inner glory and outward fruitfulness and abundance. And so, God, we cry out for both in this house. In the mighty name of Jesus, we all shouted amen and amen.